0: Captain Nicola Goddard was killed in a firefight in Afghanistan on May 17, 2006. She was Canada's first female service member to die in combat. A trailblazer, Nicola was the captain of a gun troop at a time when the role of women in combat was still being debated. For Her Country is a podcast dedicated to honoring her legacy by spotlighting powerful female leaders in the Canadian Armed Forces.
1: Nicola was born and spent her early years in Papua New Guinea, a country north of Australia known as being one of the most culturally diverse in the world. My parents, originally from England and Canada, met as teachers and later married there. When Nicola was three, my parents moved home to Canada with her and my other sister, Victoria. Everyone lived with my grandparents in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, before moving to Black Lake, a Dene community in Saskatchewan, about 60 kilometres south of the Northwest Territories. We spent the next two decades moving around Canada for my parents' assignments in education from Dundurn and Lavrange, Saskatchewan, Pangardung, Baffin Island, Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and Antigonish, Nova Scotia. When Nicola was in grade 12, we were living in Antigonish. A military recruiter presented at Nick's school, and she became excited about the possibilities a career with the military could create, free education, and a job after graduation focused on making the world a better place. Both sides of my family have a history of public service through education, medicine, and law enforcement, and I think Nicola saw the military as an opportunity to continue this legacy. And so Nick went to the Royal Military College in Kingston and joined the artillery. After graduation, she was posted to the 1st Regiment Royal Canadian Horse Artillery in Shiloh, Manitoba. In time, her work took her across Canada. She spent time in Gagetown, New Brunswick for training. She spent a summer in British Columbia fighting forest fires. A winter at Rogers Pass shooting down avalanches, proactively clearing snowpacks so that they don't impact homes, businesses, and other infrastructure. In early 2006, Nicola was deployed to Afghanistan. While my family has a deep history of service, the military was new to us, and that created some natural uncertainty and concern. Nick's role was as a forward observation officer, responsible for directing artillery and airborne fire. The Christmas before Nick was deployed, She told my parents that she was doing her job so that as educators and humanitarians, they could later do theirs. When Nick was in Afghanistan, she sent emails home to our family with updates from her deployment. In her fourth letter home, she reflected on the experience of serving alongside citizens of Afghanistan who were desperately fighting to create a better home for themselves and their families. She wrote, I think that these people are trying to achieve something, that we in Canada have long since taken for granted. They lay down their lives daily to seize something that is so idealistic it is almost impossible to define. I love that last line. To seize something that is so idealistic it is almost impossible to define. It so beautifully captures why Canadians have the role that we do around the world. To help people. Nicola was killed during a firefight in the Panjoué district on May 17, 2006. It was my father's birthday. She was the first female Canadian soldier to die in a combat role. And on the day of her death, she was also the first Canadian to call in fire since the Korean War. Following Nick's death, Canada came together to support my family, neighbors, friends, colleagues, complete strangers. We were surrounded by this incredible outpouring of love and support. In time, we came to understand that Nick's legacy of leadership, strength and courage could continue to create a better world. The Captain Nicola Goddard Fund now celebrates and supports service women and female veterans who, like Nicola, protect the values integral to Canada and who stand on guard for those less fortunate around the world. Nicola's top priority was always her people, her family, her soldiers, her community, her country. With the fund, we're able to help protect her people and also tell the stories of incredible Canadian service women to inspire leaders in both military and civilian Canada.
0: I'm Shannon Busta, and thank you for joining us for the first episode of For Her Country, a podcast produced by the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. The voice you just heard belongs to Catherine Rusk, Nicola's sister. Catherine and the Goddard family have been instrumental in the creation of this podcast. Over the course of this series, we'll explore lessons in leadership from inspirational female leaders from across Canada's armed forces. All in honor of fallen Canadian military hero, Captain Nicola Goddard. I'm a journalist by trade, a civilian. I have never served in the military, nor has anyone in my immediate family. So I'd understand if you were wondering why I'm hosting this podcast. The short answer is that I was asked to by Teresa Sapara, a friend and veteran who I respect deeply. The long answer is that I was inspired by Nicola's story, and I wanted to do anything that I could to help spread awareness for her legacy and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. Over the course of producing this podcast, I have met brilliant and strong women, and our conversations have left me feeling inspired and given me a deeper understanding of the work of the Canadian military. So join me as we learn about Canada's military through the lens of the trailblazing women who have helped shape our armed forces. From base training to deployments, Our guests will share their experiences with us, and along the way, we'll uncover universal lessons we can all benefit from. We want to take this opportunity to thank RBC for generously supporting this podcast series as presenting sponsor. RBC has been an advocate for true patriot love since 2010 and has committed over $1 million to support Canada's military members, veterans, and their families. Thank you, RBC. For our first interview of the series, I'm speaking with Major Jamie Phillips, the first female artillery troop commander deployed to Kandahar. Jamie was the recipient of the Order of Military Merit in 2015. She attended school with Nicola, and their relationship helped Jamie develop her own leadership style. Thanks so much for being here with us today, Jamie. Really looking forward to digging into your career and your experiences in the military. I'm hoping you can start us off by telling us what drew you to a career in the armed forces in the first place.
2: Um, So my father served. He was an officer in the Armored Corps. Um, So I grew up as part of that lifestyle, but it it wasn't, my dad was very, very subtle. It was never like, you should join the army. It was, you know, there was, there was no sort of significant, like you should follow in my footsteps kind of business. But when I was uh, 14, one of my friends uh, invited me to join the cadet the army cadet movement with him in our, uh, in our local area. So I went with him and I think my dad wasn't necessarily opposed to it, but he, you know, certainly got tired of driving me around to things all the time. Um, but then from there um, I found out about the Royal military college and, you know, free school. So uh, thought that would be a good, a good option for somebody who uh, was really enjoying the army cadet uh, experience and sort of the, the camaraderie and the team aspect of it. And the, you know, the, there's, really athletic parts you know I was part of the biathlon team and then there's leadership parts where I got to be instructor on courses and things like that it was really great um so it seemed like a natural next step for for RMC I really I honestly didn't consider very many other career options it was just sort of very clear to me from a very young age that that's what I wanted to do
0: so you mentioned RMC there and for our listeners that's the Royal Military College it's based in Kingston Ontario so you attended there for your undergraduate degree what was that experience like for you?
2: Yeah, I loved I loved RMC. Um, it was like looking back on it, I don't even I don't even understand how it's possible to do so many things in the run of a day. Like it was, you know, uh, I would get up in the morning, I think around 5:30, because six o'clock was when band practice started. Um, so then you'd go and do band practice every day until I think it's probably seven, um, and then it was go you know rush back put your uniform on, classes I think started at eight, um, and then you're in class all day until Four four thirty and then at four four thirty, whatever that ended, you were off to uh, your varsity sports uh practice, and so that ended usually around six thirty and then you'd scoot into the meal hall for supper, sort of just before seven because seven was cut off time and then there was no more food after that and then uh back upstairs you know to your dorm room and homework or whatever you had to try to smash out before sort of falling unconscious you know somewhere in the evening It was just such a busy time, and i I have no idea how uh, I did it, but uh, everybody, mostly everybody that I knew uh, sort of had these same crazy hours and schedules and lifestyles and everybody sort of came out of it with with a degree and uh, a good experience, so yeah, I I loved RMCA.
0: (laughs) It sounds pretty competitive when I think back to my undergrad experience. I had 15 hours of class a week, so it sounds like you were doing more in a day than I was doing in a week, so kudos.
2: And I was an arts person, so I mean shout out to the engineers. (laughs) Um, you mentioned
0: that RMC is built on four four pillars. Could you explain what those are for us?
2: Yes. So there's the military pillar. Um, so there, are, you know, there's drill, dress, uh, uh, ceremonial inspections. You know, the sort of the the stuff that we focus on during that first month when we got there. There's the academic pillar, which is pretty straightforward. Um, there's the physical fitness pillar. So there's uh, physical fitness testing and the requirement to participate in the sport. And then uh, bilingualism is the fourth pillar.
0: That's amazing, and it sounds like it—it it, it would provide you with such an incredible foundation for anything in life.
2: I think so. I think uh, I learned a lot there, and then the, the people that I met there are lifelong friends and um, important, really. Like the experiences that we've shared together. I recently was back for my fifteen-year reunion in the fall, and it was—it was so great to see some of those folks again, and you know, realize that uh, really not that much has changed. It's nice.
0: Uh, On the topic of people that you met there, uh, I believe that you actually attended RMC at the same time as Nicola Goddard. Could you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Nicola? Uh,
2: So Nicola was in uh, third year when I was in first year at the Royal Military College. And what that means is so, uh, again, in keeping with that sort of like always practicing leadership thing, uh, the third years are a group of third years are put in charge of the first year class. So you get uh, you get three third years and a fourth year or it's changed. You know, now it's fourth years, I think. But at the time, it was uh, three third years and a fourth year that were our leadership staff, uh, our 30 person uh, group in my uh, first year flight. And so Nicola was one of my third years who was in charge of us. Um, so she was, you know, she was the first woman that I had met who was in the artillery. And at the time I was in the infantry. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't that that I think necessarily drew drew me to her. But um, she just had, she was a great leader, like she had a really solid, strong foundation in in caring for people and just being both competent, but also like wonderful and generous at the same time. Some people feel that like leadership has to come at a cost of, of care, or you know, or or of of empathy or things like that. And uh, she was, even she was, you know, she would have been so young, but she already had like such a well developed blend of this like strong leadership. She, uh, she was amazing. So uh, we, we bonded because we were both on the biathlon team. I joined the biathlon team that year. Um, She was one of my first year instructors. I remember my first interaction with her was, um, so when you're there for your first month, it's sort of like frosh week, except it's not fun. It's like the opposite of fun. (laughs) And so your first month is like, extra arduous compared to even like what the rest of your rmc time is going to look like it's a bit of a it's it's meant to form your your team bond like it's meant to sort of like forge you and fire together so you come out the other end as this like cohesive uh, strong team and so it's terrible um and you're doing a lot of physical activity and i was having i was having leg cramps like in the night uh and i couldn't figure out why and i was very worried that i was like having some sort of you know physical breakdown that was going to stop me from finishing my time at RMC like it was all very dramatic because of course you're exhausted so everything is just like huge and uh I sort of like I remember like sidling up to her and sort of confiding in her that, that this has happened and I don't know what's happening and oh my god I don't know what to do and she was like just sprinkle some salt on your food in the in the cafeteria everything will be fine like it's you're just you're dehydrated it's fine Like oh oh thank God oh I thought it was dying you know it was it was very extreme and she was like it's okay just just put some salt on your food and so I did it was that's all it was Um, we were just doing a lot of physical activity and I wasn't used to it so that was all Um, and then uh, so in the summertime we would we both went to Gagetown so she was ahead of me in the training but we all we all went down all the army people went down together to Gagetown in the summer to do our training so she was there too and I'll I will always remember I think I was having like I was having boy troubles. And I was, I was upset, like I had been visibly crying. And uh, I remember that she, she saw me and she, she saw that I was upset and she came to my room and she said, um, so your choice, um, we can either talk about what's bothering you or I can show you my pictures um, from my summer face training last summer because I was coming up on my summer face training. So obviously I didn't know what to expect. Um, and so I said, no, uh, "Face training, please." And uh, so she came down, and she brought her photo album, and she sort of flipped through it with me, and like showed me some of the things that I would expect to be doing on my summer training that summer. And so it took my mind off of my my boy anguish. Um, just just like did a really really great job of being a like a supremely amazing leader. Um, yeah. So she was great. And then we were, we ended up being in the same trade. I trained to I changed to artillery in third year because of uh, a medical returned to training off of my infantry training, but it just, it wasn't going well for me really. It wasn't, uh, the infantry wasn't uh, wasn't a good fit for me. So uh, that summer I transferred out to the artillery and that's uh, then sort of got to like follow in Nicola's footsteps through, through the training after that. And she became sort of, you know, she was the well-known woman so that people would meet you and they'd be like, oh, do you know Nicola? Like she became sort of like the emblem of, of my generation of artillery. She was like the front lady of our generation kind of thing. So uh, so after that, you know, she sort of like forged the path for the rest of us.
0: And do you think that your personal leadership style was influenced by your exposure to Nicola?
2: I hope so. I be- I got to be in charge of first years when I was in my fourth year. So like so the cycle kind of continued and I, I really enjoyed it. And I, um, you know, I'm still friends with some of those people because I think, you know, in their moments of anguish, I I tried to, you know, be that empathetic person for them. And, you know, it, you know, you're still in charge and you're still the leader and you're still, you know, very much in you know, in the hierarchy, there's still a hierarchy, but uh, you still, there are ways that you can relate to people and share in their, in their challenges, especially, you know, it's their first year and they're away from home for the first time and things like that. So I, I, think, I think I definitely learned from her that it was okay to also be a human like, at the same time as you're being a leader. Like, that's fine. You can be both.
0: You know, the more I learn about Nicola, the more it becomes so obvious that she just had such strong leadership instincts at such an early age, and was such an asset to the Canadian forces. So thank you for helping us understand your relationship with her and allowing us to get to know her a bit better. I'm Catherine Rusk, Captain Nicola Goddard was my sister,
1: and I'd like to make a request. Military service can bring great challenges and sacrifices. Women in particular can face unique issues. Help True Patriot Love and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund support Canada's service women, veteran women, and their families. True Patriot Love Foundation is a national organization that supports the military and veteran community by funding critical programs across the country. Please consider donating today towards their mission at tplgoddardfund.com. No donation is too small. On behalf of my family and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, we thank you for your support.
0: This episode is sponsored by Trouble Victor Group, whose mission is to enable ex-military leaders to achieve their full potential in the marketplace. So you spend four years developing your leadership skills, your military training at RMC. You're exposed to strong leaders like Nicola. Can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory once you graduated?
2: So after I graduated, I went to complete my final phase of artillery training in Gagetown, New Brunswick. And then after completing that, I got to be a support troop commander. So that's that's sort of the goal of the young uh, graduate from the military college, just to be a, a troop commander or a platoon commander, depending on your trade. Um, you are in charge of 30-ish folks, um, all ranks, uh, you know, and, You know, theoretically, you're the boss, but uh, in the Canadian Army, we have a really great system, a really strong cadre of senior non-commissioned officers or senior NCOs. And those are folks who joined as privates um, and then sort of worked their way up through the ranks, as opposed to officers who join as officer cadets and then typically go to school right away. Um, and then after their schooling they arrive sort of these young fresh very junior leaders ready to take command of things they get paired up with one of these senior non-commissioned officers who has you know 20 plus years of experience sometimes um, and that becomes your sort of command team And it's quite brilliant the way that it works out so you, you know you show up all keen I've completed my phase training I've you know I'm I know everything there is to know about the artillery you know in my own mind you know I was 21 years old and I you know, thought I was absolutely brilliant and ready to take this all on. Um, but, and then they pair you up with this more experienced um, member of your trade who actually does have the experience and the ability to, to do the things that you're uh, being asked to do. And then the two of you um, form this hopefully close relationship that is, you know, you are absolutely the leader. You're the figurehead. You get to, you know, you, you carry it on your shoulders for the, for the decisions, good or bad. But then you've got this incredibly uh, confident and and capable advisor who sort of stands at your shoulder and sort of gently nudges you in the direction that you're trying to go in and you know gives you advice and helps you out in in difficult situations and gives you the benefit of their years of experience. So the way the way that we work it is is pretty brilliant, I think. It's not something that all countries do. Uh, not every country has that same um, senior non commissioned officer cadre. So I think it's quite special. And I was really lucky my first uh, my first troop porn officer was uh, very experienced uh you know some would definitely call him crusty I know I definitely did at the time um but he he was great you know he he guided me he helped me uh he was you know it, it's so it's such a balance to do it in a way that's productive because some you know you also don't want it to seem as though you aren't in control or that you don't have the ability to lead I mean we, we're very big on leadership it's super important Um, So, you know, you have to be really careful that it's not an overbearing kind of relationship, but just one of mutual respect and, you know, advice and counsel and things like that. So I was really, really lucky. I got to command a troop right away. Um, It was a support troop instead of a gun troop. So rather than having um, howitzers or uh, like artillery cannons to, uh, as part of my, my troop, I had the things that you need in order to support uh, the artillery firing. So I had some drivers. I had maintainers. I had uh, the folks who were in charge of the radios. You know, like so, it's a, a broad mix of folks from different trades, different ranks, different situations. So it was a really interesting challenge for a young troop commander to come into that and get to manage it.
0: I'm kind of blown away. I'm thinking about you know when I was like at 21, and I certainly wasn't in a in any way prepared to lead a troop of 30 people. Were there many other young women in your kind of orbit at that time?
2: Going through my phase training, there were sort of one or two other women, I would say, on each of my, in each of my sections in my courses. Things like that. I was never, I was never the only one, but there was never like a critical mass either.
0: And so, what was next for you? What came after that?
2: After that, I was, uh, I spent a year doing what's considered um, sort of an executive assistant or staff officer job, which is a, you know, you get to be the staff officer to a senior leader. So in that case, it was the commander of the um, combat training center in Gagetown, who was a colonel. And then I was posted to Petawawa, where I got to be a a troop commander again. And that's when I did my deployment to Afghanistan.
0: I'm glad that you brought up your deployment. I believe that you went to Afghanistan in February of 2007. Could you tell us a bit about what that experience was like for you and uh, give our audience a sense of what it's like to be deployed?
2: So every deployment is different and every you know every experience in Afghanistan is different too but uh, what mine was um, as a troop we would move around to new locations fairly often sometimes we'd be in one place for a couple months sometimes we'd be in a place just for a couple days so you sort of you jump around wherever the operations are happening so that you can best support Um, so we were we were rarely on Kandahar airfield so uh, you know that's the stuff where you'd see like the Tim Hortons and things like that and you'd have like a more of a coalition feel we were very much off by ourselves which was you know pluses and minuses for sure Um, so when we were out we were sometimes staying in what's called a forward operating base which is like a little bit built up it's got a little bit of protection you know we had some that had bunkers on them or or modular tentage or things like that and then other times we just full-on like pulled up into a field and you know stopped our vehicles and we're like, okay, this is where we live now. And uh, sort of did that.
0: And what does camp in this situation look like? I'm picturing
2: tents. Dependent on the security situation. So, um, you know, we we slept out just in an open kind of uh, situation like that when we weren't in an area where there was a potential for uh, ground attack. Um, in other cases, we would go if we were out in a place that was more dangerous, but we still had to just sort of do this like plop down and live here thing. Um, you would you dig, so you dig um, shell scrapes, or uh, you know, um, if you're there for long enough, you can dig a, a lot of, of protective space for yourself and for the the, the guns. Um, So a couple of places we were there um, for a long enough period of time that we could sort of dig in, you know, ground is here, you sort of dig down, and then uh, you'll sort of fill sandbags around the top to give you a little bit of extra protection.
0: I'm picturing like a trench from World War II. Yeah,
2: basically, but uh, not as well constructed as those. So you're often finding yourself
0: sleeping under the stars, occasionally in things that resemble trenches. I can't help but wonder if you're showering and what you're eating on a day-to-day basis
2: the there there wasn't showers when we were out like when we were staying in a field like that I would bucket wash my hair I, it was much shorter than I cut it all off before I went I had sort of like a little nub ponytail so that I could wash it with a couple um, water bottles we would sometimes build temporary showers there was one that was built we were co-located with some American special forces so they had some interesting like gear that we didn't have so they were able to build more things um now a huge part of it is baby wipe centric like <laughs> so you of like wash the important bits but at the time, it wasn't. It was more kind of old-timey, like it was more like washcloth, you know, basin. So we did our laundry on washboards. Not even joking. Like <laughs> it was, uh,
0: it was pretty interesting. <laughs> Can you give me a sense of the gender dynamics at this time? Was it typical for a female to be leading a gun troop on deployment?
2: So technically, I was the first woman to lead a gun troop in Kandahar. Um, which means nothing, but it's just sort of an interesting title. Um, was that for Canada or for all of the coalition forces? I mean, Canada was the only one who had women integrated into the artillery at that time. So the Americans and the Brits didn't. Um, and wow. It, until like much later, which was sometimes problematic when working in a multinational um, environment. No, it was me. Um, between our three troops, um, so that's, you know, 120 people or whatever it was in the battery it's, it was a really beefy battery like we really we really chunked things up for the deployment so probably with 120 of us there were two women and I was the commander and what, the other woman was one of my sergeants so they, they they paired the two ladies together um for safety I don't know moral support
0: what was that like being one of two females what were the challenges you faced
2: like my my troops were good like my troops were fine they it's it's relatively normal even then it was like less normal but it was still relatively normal for Canadian troops because we integrated women into the combat trades in 1989 and I was deploying in 2007 so Canada was like super ahead of the game so even when I joined like one generation of women had already kind of like come in and suffered through it all so it was like there were challenges for me but it wasn't like I was the brand new first woman ever um, but on deployment, working with some of the other nations where women were not gender integrated into the combat trades yet, I was the first woman that they had ever worked with. And it was kind of confusing and upsetting for them in a lot of ways. And like the Americans especially were having, um, they, were, they were debating it at that time. Like they were having, like, you know, in the media, they were having debates and they were having these like just horrifying discussions over like all of the terrible things that would happen if you incorporated women into the combat trades. So that becomes kind of awkward when you're there (laughs) like, hello. (laughs) Yes, we're integrated. It's fine. (laughs) As it turns out, the the army didn't come crumbling down. Were there any instances of somebody
0: from another force being rude or inappropriate or crossing the lines in terms of aggressive behavior? And if so, how did you deal with it?
2: Yeah, always. Um, It almost became like a matter of course, not as much. Sometimes there's outward, like really obvious rudeness, but more often I feel like it's like a slightly subtle, you know, somewhere between outward aggression and microaggression, sort of sort of dancing that line where you could like maybe convince someone that they had misinterpreted it if they, uh, if they took it poorly. Um, There was, I remember there was a, an individual, an American officer who was working on one of the forward operating bases where we spent some time and uh, he just, he felt the need to just constantly like vocally espouse all the reasons why it was a terrible idea to have women in the combat trades, like to me, you know, around my soldiers, just in front of my face, not, um, just not super helpful, but I, my, my troops were, they did the absolute best thing, which was just act like confused about what this guy was going on about. You know what I mean? Like they just, by perceiving it as normal and having the other people see them perceiving it as normal, I think that was the best thing that could have, that anybody could have done. You know, like I, I have learned that I can't convince people that women should be in the army if they don't think they should be. Like that is one of those like deeply held beliefs that people have that I cannot change their minds through debate. Um, I can maybe sometimes change their minds through, performance or through action or experience or things of that nature like if they work with me for a while maybe they'll be okay with it after but it's not something that you can like tell people and they get it so I was still trying back then but it was such a pointless endeavor do you mind me asking what some
0: of those things that guy would say like what were his reasons for why oh, she be be there they're,
2: they're all the same reasons that continue like to this day if you ever read any of the comment sections of any <laughs> any article about women in anything ever Um, So the main arguments were always uh, physical strength. So his argument was that I would never be able to uh, pull him out of a combat situation if he were to be killed or shot. And, uh, you know, my answer to that was always, okay, well, you know, he weighed almost 300 pounds. It would have been very difficult for really anybody in my organization to pull him out of a situation like that. Um, I often get the... uh, Men have an innate desire to protect women. Therefore, in a combat situation, if you have a woman, uh, rather than be doing their jobs, men will be going out of their way to like fling themselves in front of you and protect you from danger, which is a thing that has never happened to me. And I like to tell people that none of my troops threw themselves in front of me at all when we were under fire of any kind. So that was great. Um, And the other one that people say is that having a woman there will undermine the cohesion, the unit cohesion. Um, So there's that factor where it's sort of like oh you know that camaraderie can't possibly be built with a woman there um, and i i mean the the proof is in the pudding like i i have lots of friends in the army it's all been fine you know no units have come crumbling apart and disintegrated because they put women in them you know how
0: did you maintain a positive outlook while being subjected to bad behavior like this
2: i mean i really didn't like i got really irritated about it um I think I'm a little bit better now. I've had more experience. I've deployed in a, in a, or I've been in a multinational experience since then. That was quite challenging for the same reason. So it's like I've had more practice now. I've, I've grown and matured and like worked on my control. But at the time, it was mostly just like it would make me furious. I would uh, either say nothing or say you know something really smart alecky that was probably not helpful. But it you know just felt like the best defense at the time was just to be you know on the offense. Um, you know, I would gripe to my, to anybody that I could, who was willing to, who was willing to absorb my, my fury, um, for moral support. I was like, I was really lucky. I had a really strong troop born officer for that deployment as well, like sort of a different guy, but the same version of the, like, you know, he has more time in the army than I have alive at that time, you know? So he, uh, he's a great moral support and, you know, in sort of like a fatherly slash like leadership kind of just like, shh, it's fine. You're doing fine, shh, it's fine. Don't don't listen to them, don't worry about it, it's okay. And so just knowing that I had the, you know, the love and support of my crew was more important than what this like idiot things.
0: And and the challenges you faced, I mean, obviously they've uh, not been so overwhelming that they've, um, that you've you felt the need to leave because you're still in the military today. Can you tell us a little bit about what keeps you uh, serving?
2: It's the people. I love the people. Um, You know, for every asshole, there's like 100 amazing people that are just like, they become great lifelong friends. And it sort of, it forges these like weird bonds that I didn't really realize until I I had a job two years ago. I worked at the Privy Council office in like a public service uh, environment. So I worked with civilians for the first time you know and we're pretty insular in the army like we don't do a lot of like cross-pollination with other organizations or other parts of the government so it was my first time working with like real people um and so at at one point my I have a cottage in New Brunswick that I uh co-owned and there was a massive pile of snow that winter this was I was like nine feet of snow in the cottage and somebody called me from New Brunswick and was like hey you I'm worried about the roof, you know, you might want to come down here and just like have a look because I don't know, it seems like it could be problematic. I was like, okay, well, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll get together a crew and I'll uh, go down and shovel it off next weekend. It's like a 12 hour drive. It's fine. And so yeah. I sort of put it out on Facebook like, hey, uh, anybody want to come help me shovel? Uh, you know, I'll be there Saturday morning, 9am, uh, you know, bring your shovel. There's no, there's no uh, hot water, but uh, you know, there's beer, come on down. And um, and people did, you know what I mean? Like you just, you have access to this like amazing network of folks that you can call on for any like insane life issue or favor or problem that you have. You can just call them and be like, Hey, um, I need you to take care of my dog for like two months. They're like, yeah. Okay. Sounds great. Uh, how much does he eat? You know, like it's a very, because you're not around your family because you're moving around all the time, you get like a new family.
0: And before I let you go, if you had one piece of advice for young women out there looking uh, to advance their careers and build their leadership skills, what would it be?
2: I think be yourself is something that is, you know, it sounds trite and it sounds, you know, it's like what everybody, I think what everybody says, but I think when you join the army, you sort of sometimes, I think maybe less so with the with new generations, but you feel like you have to conform to a, you know, a version of like what a leader looks like. You know what I mean? And you have to, and that leader is usually a dude. Um, you know, he's usually yelling. It's uh, sort of, you know, kind of beefy. Like it's, it's just, it's not achievable. And if that's not who you are, like I can't go in, and pretend that I'm, you know, a six foot tall blonde dude. You know what I mean? Like I can't, I can't just be another person. Uh, so it's not convincing if I go in and try to lead like that's what I'm doing. Um, so I think, and people, people say this, and I think it's true, is that, like, troops can tell, like, your, your troops can tell if you're faking it. So there's no point, you know, so even if you're a success, you're going to be a success because you're a fraud, you know, like, it's not, it's not worth it. Just, you can be yourself, um, you know, the military is, is changing, the, the leadership styles are, are changing, um, we're putting a lot more emphasis now on, like, that, uh, that emotional intelligence factor that is like really inspiring and I really like to see it um, so, so you, you can be yourself it's okay you know like you have something that you are bringing to the table or you wouldn't have gotten as far as you've gotten so just sort of figure out what that thing is and it'll be fine you just don't, don't try to be something else or don't try to, don't try to act in a certain way because you think that's what a leader acts like it's not going to work.
0: Jamie thank you so much for joining us today and being so generous with your time and with your stories and experience I think we've all learned a lot from you Yeah, of course. And on the next episode of For Her Country, I'll be speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Eleanor Taylor. Eleanor is a native of Antigonish, Nova Scotia, who recently completed a remarkable 25-year career as a regular force infantry officer. She has completed multiple deployments overseas, including Kosovo and later Kandahar, where she led operations with soldiers from the Canadian, U.S., and Afghan armies. She now runs a business focused on supporting the development of teams and leaders who thrive in adversity. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed my conversation with Eleanor, so here's a quick clip from our conversation where we dive into her experience with failure and how it made her a better leader. I hope you tune in. The most difficult phase, the most difficult infantry phase, is
1: the one where we learned to be an infantry platoon commander, and I failed that phase on the second last day. And it was kind of a devastating, public, humiliating blow for me. And I really thought maybe this is it. You know, maybe this is the end for me in this profession.
0: And before we sign off, I'd like to share an excerpt from one of the letters Nicola Goddard sent home to her family while she was on deployment in Afghanistan. We'll be using these letters throughout the podcast to help give you a sense of what life is like on deployment. I hope you enjoy
3: it. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Well, as you all know, I arrived safe and sound into Afghanistan on February 1st, 2006. It took us four days to fly here, quite an adventurous four days. As you know, I was pretty apprehensive about the trip into Kandahar Airfield. I knew that we were going to fly tactically and was a little concerned that I'd totally embarrass myself and throw up all over some of my soldiers. I'd never been in a HERC, the big planes that the military uses to lift heavy equipment and move personnel. HERC stands for Hercules. It was huge. They crammed in so much kit. It was amazing. They drove the tractors right onto the plane to drop off the crates with our kit in them. Then we got on. I discovered that the reason they can fit so much stuff is because they crammed the people all together in the smallest space possible. We sat in four rows, the center two with our backs to each other, facing the other row. We had to sit with our legs alternating because otherwise we didn't fit. The flight was three and a half hours long. I didn't sleep much. The tactical flying part was pretty tame. No one from my flight threw up, which was nice. Morale is pretty high, as we are all glad to finally be here. The last check was 196 days, give or take, until we come home. I think of you all often, and can't wait to see you all again. I hope that life on the home front is interesting as usual, and that you are all remembering to smile. Nick
0: For Her Country is hosted by me, Shannon Busta. It is written and produced by me and Katrina Bolak. Our music is by Whiskey Wolf and Oceanic Piano. A special thank you to Catherine Rusk and the Goddard family and the team at True Patriot Love for their support throughout this project. And thank you to our series sponsor, RBC, and our episode sponsor, Treble Victor Group. The letter shared in this episode is from the biography, Canada's Daughter, written by Sally Goddard. You can find it on Amazon. It was read by Anna Maximue. This project was produced with the True Patriot Love Foundation and the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund. True Patriot Love is Canada's leading organization that supports military members and their families. It administers the Captain Nicola Goddard Fund, which was started by the Goddard family to support women in the military in honor of Nicola. To learn more about this podcast and the great work of this organization, please visit tplgoddardfund.com and consider donating if you can. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.